This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the show. It is the Wednesday edition of the program. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And this is, as the announcer said, the Word to Stand Up for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions, life questions, anything and everything. All we need you to do is call us. You can dial 210-340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or you can use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. And remember, if you are driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Um, just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Hey, before I get started, you can tell by my voice, I have a cold. It's not a bad one. It's just like a really irritating one. So if you hear any sniffing or any breaks, it's me telling my producer to go quiet for a moment so I can cough or sneeze. But other than that, I'm here and would love to have your live calls and questions. Tonight, I'm going to be teaching uh, Genesis chapter 38, one of the really, truly ugly chapters in all of Scripture. I could never quite figure out why it's just between the beginning of Joseph and the end of Joseph, but it is. So that's what I'm going to be doing tonight here. Uh, That will be uh, able to be viewed at calvarysa.com. Well, let me get to some questions, and uh, we will um, wait for your phone calls. The first one comes from Robert. Now, Robert, I got to meet yesterday in person. Uh, He approached me in a restaurant. I was having uh, lunch with one of the pastors and his son, uh, that, that we sent out to 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 go to Durango, uh, Mexico, and uh, Robert, I appreciate you so much coming up and introducing. I love when I get to put a a face to people's names, and I appreciate it. Um, Robert says, "I apologize if this is a weird question. The reason I ask is because I have a relative uh, that tried very hard. Oh no, they, I'm sorry, was not at the thing." I have a question for you. Can someone, in a sense, force themselves to believe? Or is this something that God can choose uh, and we have no say over? I apologize if this is a weird question. Uh, The reason I ask is because I have a relative that tried very hard to become a believer. He would study daily and on the surface seemed extremely devout, but he just couldn't bring himself into believing. Thanks again for everything you do. God bless, and I hope we cross paths again. Robert, I do too. Um, Robert, your your question is really a deep one. It's not strange at all. Um, um, You know, we have no capacity to force ourselves to believe. Um, It's it's not a matter of, of... you look at all of the evidence and you just say, okay, I'm going to make myself believe it. Um, Faith is a living force. Um, We're saved by grace through faith and, and we have to believe. Now, again, it's not something you force yourself to do, but it's something that the spirit of God does for you. So um, we, we have absolute say over what we believe or don't believe. It is our choice, the choice that we can make of our own free will. Um, God would never force anybody to believe in him or to love him or to follow him. God leaves that for us to choose. Now, I think the thing that you're getting at, Robert, is that when we say, uh, as as in the case of your relative tried hard to become a believer, again, you either become a believer or you don't. You're always an unbeliever. You can't try hard. God knows our hearts. 
And Robert, I am convinced, 100% convinced, that when people who say, well, I tried Jesus, or, well, I studied and I just couldn't believe, uh, I believe that it's a, a sin that's separating them from the Lord. It's something that, that they're doing that they know is wrong, that they don't want to stop doing, and they never really invite Jesus to be the Lord of their lives. There's tons and tons of people, Robert, that know about Jesus. But to be known by him is what matters. And Jesus himself said that he will not cast out any who come to him. So this isn't Jesus' fault. The people that resist him or the people that sort of dig in and then then sort of dig their way out, uh, they really weren't really searching. You know, faith isn't something that we can touch. Faith isn't something that we can prove. Faith is the missing ingredient. It's like trying to run the, the, the nicest car in the world without any fuel. Faith is the fuel that enables us to believe and enables us to grow in the Lord and enables us to thrive and produce abundant fruit. But you see, we've got to provide the faith, and it's just a decision that we make. If your relative would agree that he is a sinner and all sinners are going to go to hell, if he would agree to that, then we could present him the evidence of a Lord who was crucified. Historical evidence is overwhelming. A Lord who didn't stay dead, which validated everything that he said about himself. And he said he was God. And then your relative would simply say, okay, well, here's the problem. Here's a solution. Here's the evidence that supports the solution. And then you believe. It's not blind faith. It's not something that God makes you do. It's something we have to choose to do. So I hope that makes sense, Robert. There's just way, way, way too many people who are waiting for God to do some miraculous thing in their lives. It's sort of, okay, God, if you show me. I had somebody say, well, well, if, if God would show me, then I would believe. And I said, well, here's the best definition of faith that I know. God says, if you believe, then I'll show you. And you see, we've got it backwards. We can't pretend that we're seeking God because he knows the deepest secrets of our hearts. So if we will believe, he'll receive us. Good question, Robert. Thanks very much. Here is a question from Charlie. He says, are good, sincere people who really believe in their religion condemned to hell? Um, Charlie, were all of us condemned? John chapter 3, right at the beginning when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, and he's talking to Nicodemus, about um, um, you must be born again. It's the most famous conversation in our New Testament. And he says we're born condemned. In other words, the moment we come from the womb, we're condemned because we have a sin nature. That sin nature leads us into sin, and sin separates us from God. So religion has no role in it. Religion, and I hate the word, Charlie, if you've been listening, you know I hate the word. Um, if you believe in Allah or Buddha or Confucius or or you're a follower of, of uh, Joseph Smith or a follower of, of Charles Taze Russell or, or whoever else has claimed to have the way to heaven, then you also have the individual responsibility and the personal accountability to find out if the person you believe in really is God. And once again, Charlie, the evidence is overwhelming. So people who accept a false God have by definition rejected the one true God. And Jesus, of course, said he was the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. And that means people that appear to be nice, appear to be sincere, appear to be devout in their exercise of religion, they are already separated from God. 30 years ago, Charlie, when I met Jesus, I was already separated from him. He is the one that reached out to me. I didn't find him, he found me. 
And that's the only way that we can be connected to God after having been separated from him by sin because of of uh, the sin nature that we have. So if you're looking for good people, you're looking for a place in heaven for good people, Charlie, you're not going to find it. The Bible says there's none good, not even one, no one who seeks God. And somebody seeking Allah, somebody seeking Buddha or Confucius, they're not really seeking God at all. They're looking for a way to find peace with their conscience, that that hole that I believe that we're all built with, that hole in our heart that only Jesus can fill. They're trying to fulfill it with with other sources, and, and the pieces never quite fit. You might wonder why would people try to fill a hole with something or someone other than Jesus Christ? The answer is because Jesus also says you got to stop sinning. I love this story in John chapter 5. In fact, I teach on it quite often. Um, the paralytic for 38 years. And Jesus healed him. The only one in the crowd that day that got healed. The crowd was large, so Jesus had to go away. The next morning, it says Jesus went to look for the man and found him. And he said to him, stop sinning or something worse will happen to you. You see, only Jesus can do that, Charlie. Thank you very much for the question. Let's go to Cindy on line one. Cindy, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. It's good to hear you today. Thank you. I hope you can hear my voice the way it sounds. Oh, I can hear. I can hear. I I can always tell when there's some kind of cedar mold or something going on because it seems to hit you first. <laughs> well, you know what the <laughs> thing is? I, allergies have been bothering me so much, but but this is different. This is a cold, so it'll be gone in a day or two. Um, oh. And, and uh, so I'm I'm fine. Thank you, Cindy. Yeah, I've heard that colds are kind of like a, a way of the body cleansing out. It, at least that's what I've heard. Who knows what's true on that? But, you know what, I was reading in uh, Mark 14, uh, verse 25, and I was curious exactly what it meant. I've got, I've got like a new King James in the kitchen, and then I've got my NIV over in the living room. So I've got the, the new King James here. So I'm in Mark 14, verse 25. Jesus says, Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And I was kind of curious about the timeline on that, if it was like when, when everything is created new, when, when the heaven comes, you know, when new Jerusalem comes down, or if it's right after he was crucified, or, or after the millennium. or I'm just kind of, you know, curious about it. But another thing, too, would you mind saying a little extra prayer that I could get a COVID shot? I want to come back to church so bad I, I could crawl there. <laughs> and I just okay. really desperately want to get a shot, but I'm not having very much luck. And I figured that more people praying that I can get a shot, the better. And I'll get off the phone and listen on the radio. Thank you, Cindy. We miss you, too, so believe me, you are now being prayed for. Cindy, the the um, passage of Scripture that you uh, shared is, of course, Jesus having um, what we call the Last Supper with his disciples. And uh, we call it communion as a celebration of of the body that was broken for ours and the blood that was given. He died that we might live. And so what he's telling his disciples is simply this. Uh, as he as he picks up the cup, it's the cup of redemption, always set out at the Passover table. He says, uh, this is the cup of the new covenant. Um, by, in effect, he was canceling the old covenant, fulfilling it completely. And he says, here's a new covenant. Now, what's beautiful about that is it's a covenant of grace, God's unmerited favor to the infinitely ill-deserving. And uh, Cindy, he... he uh, uh, was sharing it with his disciples, with his brothers now. Now, when he says in verse 25, I, I will not drink again of the fruit until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God, what he's saying is, this is it. This is all that I have for you until that moment when we're all together again. In terms of timing, Cindy, um, at the marriage supper of the Lamb, after the rapture of the church, um, Jesus will drink again the fruit of the vine. 
uh, because he will be with us in an entirely new order of things. Uh, and that's when we'll be able to to uh, drink the wine. Now, you know, Cindy, because you've known me a long time, I've never had to drink of alcohol in my life. I'm 406 years old, and I've never had a drink of alcohol. And uh, I have a feeling that I'm going to enjoy my very first drink, uh, and it will be the sweetest, most wonderful-tasting drink we've ever had. And it will cement the covenant. It will cement the marriage uh, that that we will realize uh, when we're in heaven with Jesus. So that's the timing. It's not during the millennium. It's not after. Um, in the kingdom of God uh, is when we're with Jesus face to face. Great question, Cindy. Thank you very, very much. And we are praying for you to get in position to get your COVID shot. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Here's a question from Frankie. Um, by spelling, I think this is a female Frankie. Um, I want to know, because God created everything, so where did evil come from if God wouldn't or couldn't create evil? Uh, Frankie, this is an easy question. Evil came from choice. God gave us choice. It started with the angel Lucifer, who we know, of course, as Satan or the devil. Um, God gave him and all of the angels in heaven the free will choice to serve him or to reject him. You know, God has always established choice as criteria for true love. Now, while he created the angels, his most beautiful, most powerful creatures, uh, Lucifer, probably the most beautiful of all of them, um, but they had to have a choice or it wouldn't be love. And of course, we know from Revelation that one third of the uh, angels rebelled, thus becoming demons, and two thirds of them um, maintained their first estate and are serving God. They had a one time only choice, Frankie. And so that's where it started. And uh, whenever that was, I, I personally believe that it occurred uh, on the sixth day or after the sixth day of creation when, when Lucifer, who was the most beautiful of God's creatures, saw man. When he saw Adam and Eve and God said, this is the best thing I've ever done, I think that's when the jealousy came. And, and Satan, of course, we've got his five I wills. Uh, I will cast my throne above the Most High. He simply was no longer content to worship God or even be the head worshiper in heaven. He wanted to be worshipped. And so that's where choice. He, Satan, has been infecting the human race from the very beginning uh, with with sin. And when he was able to convince Adam to sin. And since Adam is the first, he's our federal head, we inherited from him, from Adam, our sin nature. And Frankie, from that point, every bit of evil that has ever come into this world has come in because of man in our sinful nature. So Satan tries to get us to sin, then he condemns us when we do sin, but believe me, he's the one that's stirring it up all the time. So you're right, he created everything, but when he created angels and then when he created humans, we had to be given the choice. That is, by the way, Frankie, why God allowed uh, the, the devil to tempt Adam and Eve. Did God really say, he said to, to Eve, well, all these thousands of years later, thousands of years, Satan is still saying, did God really say? It's not very original. That's all he's got. Unfortunately, we're pretty easy prey, so he doesn't have to be any more original than that. So, Frankie, thank you. I hope that answers your question. Here is a question from Oliver. It's a question regarding the Equal Opportunity Act that is before Congress. Oliver says, what will happen if you are required by the government to employ homosexuals or transgender people? Um, Oliver, we won't do it. doesn't matter what the consequence is going to be. Uh, we won't do it. Uh, we only hire people who are born-again believers. Uh, we only hire them 
uh, from within our church body so that we know them. We're not ever looking to hire people from the outside. We hire people from inside the church. Uh, and when when they're interested in a job or we're interested in putting somebody on, it's only because we've we've watched their lives and we've we've gotten to know them well. Um, there's a, a level of trust. We we understand that we're on the same mission. You know, Amos three three says, "How can two walk together unless they agree to do so?" Well, if I were to hire somebody who was homosexual or somebody who was transgender, uh, that would put them in opposition to God. And that means they wouldn't be walking with me. So we simply wouldn't hire them. Now, Oliver, there's a lot of Christians who are kind of freaked out about the Equal Opportunity Act. You need to relax for a time. I don't think we're anywhere close to that. Not saying that sometime in the future that won't be the case. Uh, but believe me, uh, if the Equal Opportunity Act passes, and I personally believe that it will, I, I believe that before this administration is out, uh, there will be a, the, the passage by both houses of Congress uh, enthusiastically signed into law by our president. If that were to happen, uh, it, there would be an immediate appeal um, to to stop it. And the the Supreme Court has been really consistent even before there was a a, a, a bigger conservative majority. Uh, the Supreme Court has consistently supported um, the, the right of of churches in particular, to use the religious examples or the religious uh, books that they have to determine who can be involved in their mission field. So, uh, you know, Oliver, I'm, I'm an old man now. Pastor Ken will probably be the one that has to deal with this. But um, I can tell you that we who are here at Calvary Chapel, we're simply not going to violate what God told us to do. And and no amount of government pressure is going to change that. Um, I'm 70 years old almost. 30 years I've been walking with Jesus. He's never disappointed me. He's never failed me, not one time. There's no way I could ever deny him just because I was afraid of going to jail or something. So, hope that answers your question, Oliver. Thank you very, very much. Here is a question from Eb Eddie. That was one of those sniff breaks right there. Thank you for being so patient. Eddie said, how do you come up with sermon topics in your preaching? Eddie, uh, I'm the least creative guy you've never known. I mean, I'm not a creative person. Uh, I don't come up with sermon topics. I just don't. I teach through the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. And so wherever we left off last Sunday, we're going to pick up this coming Sunday, and uh, and that's where we'll start again. So I don't have to figure out, okay, am I going to talk about love? Am I going to talk about trials? Am I going to talk about spiritual warfare? Am I going to talk about prayer? I don't even have to think of those things. I just open the Bible, and then we, we uh, do expository preaching um, with whatever the text is, and um, uh, we, we want people to leave here knowing not only what it says, but we want them to know what it means, and then we want them to know what it means for them in their practical daily lives, how they can use it as soon as they leave the church service. We, we want them to, to be equipped for anything that comes up. I can't imagine, Eddie, anything more difficult for me personally. Now, I'm sure there—in fact, I know there are pastors who do a wonderful job with this, and they're they're creative, and they do great jobs. And so they'll set out a bunch of topics and then do sermon series on those topics. Uh, if I had to do that, uh, you talk about an excedrin headache. I mean, I just I just couldn't do it. Um, I'd spend more time trying to figure out, okay, what do you want to say, Lord, than, than uh, just opening his word. I know he wants to say that. You know, Eddie, we're in, in 1 Corinthians on Sunday mornings right now. And um, when I got to chapter 6, it got really difficult. When I got to chapter 7, it got even more difficult. Um, you know, when I get to chapter 8, and I'm going to finish chapter 7 this week. I'm talking about singles uh, in the church. Uh, but when I get to chapter 8, it just kind of gets boring. It's just boring for a little while. Not not very long, thankfully. But it just gets a little boring. We're talking about legalism and some other things. So so there are days when the the topic or the passage of Scripture that we're preaching from isn't quite as dynamic as others. Uh, 
But you see, my church knows that, that we're going through the Bible. We're not going to skip any verses just because it doesn't preach well. Um, we want them to have the whole counsel of God. So that's how we do what we do here. And Eddie, I, I wouldn't want it any other way. Again, there are people that are different and they do a wonderful job um, doing topical messages and they do it very biblically. Uh, it just can't be me. I can't do it that way. So I hope that helps. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left in the program. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. This is the Word of Santa for Life. We'll be back in two minutes. If you have questions about the Bible, you can send them to Pastor Ron and he'll answer them on the air or reply directly to you. Email your questions to Pastor Ron KSLR at gmail.com. That's Pastor Ron KSLR at gmail.com. Welcome back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of the program, 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is an anonymous question. My 15-year-old son has decided he is an atheist. He doesn't want to go to church. How should I respond? Uh, I'm going to be really direct, anonymous. Father, here's how you should respond. You should say, until he is on his own, paying rent, paying for his own food, uh, living in his own home, that he doesn't get to decide what he does or what he doesn't do. He is a child. You're the dad. And you're going to stand before Jesus and give account for how you raised your son. This is a time for discipline. This is a time for you to, to step up and be the authority figure in your house. You can't make your son believe. You can't even make him listen. But you can make him come to church. You can make him sit and be respectful. And if he doesn't, there needs to be severe consequences. You know, we can't let kids decide they're in charge. And unfortunately, in the culture that we live in, um, with all the pop psychology, child-raising stuff that's been out there uh, in this generation, um, you can put your foot down. Just put your foot down. We can't let our children live in willful sin. We can't aid and abet their sin. We also can't pander to their demands. The schools they go to teach them they're free agents, but unfortunately the world doesn't treat them that way. When He's out on his own trying to support himself. If he decides he doesn't want to go to work, he's going to get ex uh, uh, fired. Um, he's going to get uh, evicted from his place. As you tell, he's going to get shot. Um, life is about making peace with doing things that we don't want to do. And then, obviously, you need to pray. Let him know you love him, that you're going to be praying for him, but he will be respectful if he wants to live. You know, 15 years, think about this, and we get this a lot. Um, we do family counseling here. You have roughly three years before your son is legally able to make his own decisions. That means you've got three years where you can be a positive influence for Jesus. That three years is going to go by like three minutes. You got to prepare him, and if he decides to to rebel against God, um, then he needs to know what the consequences are going to be. He needs to know that the world is a tough place, and you can't keep him away from the consequences of the choices that he makes. Fifteen is not too young to start learning that consequences follow bad choices. This is a bad choice. I'm not going to let you make it. When you're on your own, you can do what you want. But remember, you're paying the bills. You're supplying the food. That's just the way it's going to be. Pray for him. 
340-9585. Here's another anonymous question that's uh, kind of funny. Maybe he's listening to my voice today. He said, do you ever get tired of preaching? Um, the the answer is no. I've been doing it for here in, in San Antonio for 25 years, twenty six, almost 26 years now. In May, it'll be 26 years. And uh, I think this is the biggest privilege um, in my life. I mean, the, the privilege of being Paula's husband, that's number one. That's a reminder. We get the date day show tomorrow. But uh, other than that, this is, I think, um, the greatest privilege and honor of my life. I get to study God's Word. I get to declare God's Word. I get to do it three times a week in front of my church. I get to do it every day here on the Word to Stand Up for Life. Um, how could anybody get tired of that? I just don't know. So the answer to the question is no. And somebody asked me yesterday what I was thinking about in terms of retirement. And and I, I always answer that kind of the same way. It's just something that happens when you get to be my age. And I said, well, you know, I'm still working on getting tired. And I, I don't have uh, anonymous a desire to slow down yet at this point. Uh, I'm sure a day will come um, uh, when I stop making sense and and uh, when 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 I'm no longer fruitful, and I hope I'll be a godly man when that happens, and and just sort of uh, call Pastor Ken in from the bullpen. But um, as of today, uh, I don't have any desire to slow down. Um, uh, I, I can't imagine what Sundays would be like. Actually, it would start for me earlier than that. I get to wake up early on Sunday morning. Um, there's this sense of today the Lord is going to use me. Today people are going to get saved. And I, I just can't imagine what I would do other than that. And it's not, I don't need the attention. Um, I just, I really have a sense of awe at the privilege that God has given me in allowing me to do this. I'm, I'm blessed above all people. So I hope that helps. Here is a question from our email inbox. Oop, got a phone call first? Okay. We got uh, Ryan from Bernie on line one. Ryan, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hey, Pastor Ron. How you doing? Doing well, Ryan. Thank you. Good. I have a couple questions for you, if you can help clarify me. I'm currently reading the book of Acts. And in uh -huh. Acts 15, it talks about the letter that they wrote to the Gentiles about sexual morality, I understand that, and then about the not, sacrif not eating meat sacrificed to animals that were idols. sacrificed to idols. idols. And uh -huh. then what, what does it mean about the blood and then about strangled animals? That's, that's I'm kind of uncertain on, or unclear on that. And then okay. in Acts 16, when Paul and Silas are followed by the lady uh, with the Spirit, Mm -hmm. Paul says, you know, he says, you know, in the name of Jesus, I command you to come out of her. Is that where a lot of Christians these days get the, you know, I command you, I rebuke you, I take authority? <laughs> and is, are they doing the right principle? Is that right because Paul did it, or is it wrong? If you could clarify that, that would be great so I get better understanding. And uh, God bless your show for everything you do. Thank you, Ryan. God bless you. Appreciate it very, very much. Let me ask the, answer the second one first because I, I got he, Ryan tickled me. It, it is unfortunately uh, one of the places where um, um, Christians have decided that we can sort of demand spirits to come out and, and do those kind of things. Um, um, you know, we we don't have quite the authority that Paul had. We don't have the authority, certainly, that Jesus had, where where the demons came and trembled before him. Don't cast us out before it's time, kind of thing. Um, but yeah, because we like the idea of, of power, and we like um, um, exciting things. Ryan, dealing with demons is not exciting at all. It is the most painful, ugliest thing that, that I've ever had to deal with. And... Um, when you start yelling at him, um, you're, you're in over your head. You're in over your head. And uh, the truth is that, that we don't have any authority. Um, Jesus has all the authority. 
So in order for us to effectively cast out demons, uh, Ryan, what we've got to do is we've got to, to be submitted to Jesus. He's got to be the Lord of our lives. Uh, before you go messing with a demon, there can't be any sin in your life. I mean, unrepented sin. Um, you, you've got to, the, the only source of power is him. And if you're not walking in holiness, then there's no connection to that power. So, unfortunately, that's where they get it. You know what else is interesting about this one, Ryan, is that um, if you read what the what the woman possessed by the Spirit was saying, she was saying all the right things. And in this particular case, it took Paul several days. He was troubled at first. I, I can almost hear what's going on. Well, she's saying all the right things. These men are sent by the Most High God. Listen to them. and 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 yet... He didn't want the association with with a woman who was obviously demon possessed. So his discernment was 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 working. And and finally he he waited the the time that he waited from the first time that that she encountered him to the time that the demon was cast out of her. Uh he was waiting for the Holy Spirit to say go. I'm sure he was praying for her. I'm sure he was struggling with the Lord, okay, who is this and why is why is this bothering me when she's saying the right things? And finally, at just the right time, the Holy Spirit said, cast him out. And so that's that's what happened. And you're right, unfortunately, that is um, one of the places that we get our authority. You know, when we start yelling and screaming at demons, Ryan, uh, we're like Siva's seven sons. Um, in the name of the Jesus, Paul preaches um, the demons, I know Paul and I know Jesus, but who are you? And, and so, so that's silliness and foolishness. If any one of us as believers encounters a demon, we want to be authoritative. That has nothing to do with volume. I get quiet. I've always had the person with the demon look me directly in the eyes because I know I'm looking into the demon. I'm not looking at the person. And um, almost always, um, I, I've had a demon cast out before, but most always the people go running away because they're not ready to receive Jesus Christ. The other question about the blood and the meat, uh, that was just a, an offensive thing to Jews. The life is in the blood. The Jews were, that's the Old Testament law. Remember the council of Jerusalem was settling the issue of legalism. Um, and, and, uh, they were expecting Gentiles to get circumcised. They were expecting Gentiles to, to keep the law. In effect, saying, before you can be a Christian, you gotta become a Jew. And Paul is saying no. And that was the occasion of the council of Jerusalem. Um, and so they just, they came up with some things. Okay, this isn't too much to ask. And, and, and the, because eating meat with blood, raw meat is what is in view here, would have been an offense to Jews. Um, Paul says that's the one thing that we agreed not to do. And we did that just just be kind. Uh, he's going to deal with that, by the way, in in First Corinthians chapter eight as well on a more local level in Corinth. Thank you very much, Ryan. Appreciate the question. Here is a caller that just called in anonymously to the studio. My thoughts on the Dead Sea Scrolls that were discovered in the ocean. Um, don't think they were discovered in the ocean. Um, the the parchment fragments uh, are the first in probably 60 years that were unearthed in the Judean desert. And here's exactly what my thoughts are. They're going to find that, that with the, the portions of the Dead Sea Scrolls that they found, um, they are going to um, add even more credibility to what we already know is the Word of God. Um, There's going to be more consistency. It's simply more proof that what we knew all along, that the Bible really is the Word of God and it hasn't effectively changed. Uh, the, the, the original discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls was huge uh, archaeological find. And uh, this, this again, I think these are very small portions that were discovered. There may be more, and if there are more, this would be really, really huge. Uh, but remember, questioner, that um, we already know that, that the Bible is the Word of God. It's unbelievers, and unbelievers are not going to be convinced simply by the discovery of the ancient scrolls. 
Ooh, thank you. Excuse me for another cough break that time. Here is a question of from Johnny. Um, how do you know and how can we filter out the way the world tries to make us conform to its ways? Um, Johnny, if I understand your question right, the answer, the only answer is by the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, the world hasn't changed. Now they're getting more and more brazen in the world, those who are in opposition to God. Uh, but the world, for, for all practical purposes, hasn't changed. They always hated God. They always will hate God. And uh, the world wants to conform us uh, into this neat little non-threatening uh, religious corner that they can tolerate. Um, the only way that we can effectively overrule that is by the power of the Holy Spirit. We have to walk in the light. We have to live holy lives. The power of God is available to us. And and then we've got to decide, Johnny, once and for all, that we're simply going to say no. You know, a real Christian is never going to accept homosexuality as anything other than sin. A real Christian is going to look at issues like we're dealing with with transgender uh, in this country uh, and say, say, you know, we're made in the image of God. That's a rebellion against God and the work that he's done. We're never going to be convinced that it's okay to have sex with whoever you want. We're never going to be convinced that people are basically good at heart. Our Bible tells us differently. So, Johnny, it's the power of the Holy Spirit walking in unity with Christ. It's also getting to know your Bible. If you're not a, 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 in, in the Word, if, you, if you're not a serious student of the Word, Johnny, then the world that we live in with the mastery, the, the devil is called the prince of the air, the little G God of this world, um, we're, we're going to be consumed. Uh, if you're not in the Word, and I mean consistently in the Word, then the world and its arguments and the overbearing, the constant pounding we get of worldly ideas, uh, they're going to take over. And all you have to do is look around and see how quickly things have changed in our world and now how quickly... Uh, even professing Christians are agreeing with the world in all of these different things. So, Johnny, that's the only way you can do it. It's got to be by the power of the Spirit. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Here is a question from Chip from our email inbox. Uh, Pastor Ron, I think the rock and the staff seen in Numbers 20 is a sign of Jesus' sacrifice uh, on the cross. Moses' staff being a representation of the cross and the rock and the eventual pouring out of water, a representation of Christ and his blood poured out for our salvation, just like the water saved the Hebrews in the desert. My question is, does Moses represent man in his propensity to sin? And does God punishment, God's punishment of Moses depict the consequence? Uh, he couldn't go in the promised land. And God's grace, where Moses still led God's people, was taken to heaven in his time. Are these the signs of what we can receive while serving the Lord? I hope that makes sense. Chip, it makes sense, but I think you're trying to do way, way, way too much. Um, I think it's a, it's a wonderful story. and There's really only one point in that story. The people of God have to rightly represent God. The reason Moses was punished is because he misrepresented God. God wasn't angry at the people. God wasn't angry at the people. Now, the, the water that poured out, um, water is, is used sometimes symbolically for both the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. But, but they were just physically thirsty. So I think you're going a little bit too far with the symbolism here. Um, uh, the Hebrews uh, grumbling, complaining, Moses had had enough. And so Jesus just told him, speak to the rock. And Moses struck the, twa, the, the rock and he let everybody know that he was angry and basically him not being able to go in the promised land was simply God saying, too much is given, much more is required. That's a, that's a principle Jesus uh, illuminated for us in the New Testament. Uh, when you're in a position as close to God as Moses was, the accountability level is exceptionally high. And so God simply said, you've, you've stopped representing me and you've begun to misrepresent me. 
And God is very serious, deadly serious, about how he's represented. Moses died full of years, full of strength. Moses is the greatest servant in Israel's history, the, the author of the signature miracle in the Old Testament. But nonetheless, we all still have accountability to rightly represent God. Now, I could go off on this chip. I'll, I'll try to be very, very brief. But, but I want you to think about this. As a husband or a father, and I don't know if you're a husband or a father, Chip, but, but as a husband or a father, if you misrepresent God to your wife or to your kids, God's punishment of Moses tells you what God's heart toward your misrepresentation is. Now, he's not going to bury your body. He's not going to keep you from, from enjoying things in your life. But here's what he's saying. He's saying, look, I still feel the same about the man who would be unkind to his wife or his children as I felt about Moses when he was representing that I was an angry God. Moses knew that God was full of compassion. God was patient, slow to anger, and abounding in love. And Moses striking the rock was just angry. God says, no, no, I'm not angry at the people. They're thirsty. And they're afraid. So that's all that was going on there. Now, two other quick things. Um, Moses did make it into the Promised Land on the Mount of Transfiguration. How special was that for Moses when he was on that holy mountain with Elijah and Jesus? So uh, he did make it, just not the way he thought he would. That's really important. Um, that that was Moses' reward. And of course, our, all of us, our reward is being with Jesus. So those, that's a great question. Just, just first look at the story for what it says. Don't take the symbolism any farther than is necessary. Well, we are now within five minutes of the end of the program. So here's a question from Greg. Uh, if a church is not interested in social justice, what should a healthy church do in lieu of a social justice emphasis? Greg, I don't even know where you're getting the idea that the church ought to be interested in social justice at all. Justice is a word that is in no need of an adjective. Justice is justice, injustice is injustice. So the idea of social justice has nothing to do with God. It has nothing to do with a, with a, a biblical construct whatsoever. This is a term, and remember, I, I don't know if you heard the program last week, but somebody, you know, we, we talked about the, the, the battle going on in this world for, for words and the meaning of words. Um, these are just professing Christians who aren't really Christians at all, who basically say that churches need to do more for people. When Jesus said, he's already told us what to do. If you want to know what a healthy church does, look at Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 42. That's the model given to us by Jesus himself. That's what a church looks like. And then as people get saved, as people are given gifts by God, and then people surrender their hearts to God, God then gives them a calling and that calling sends them out to do what God created them to do. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 says that we are his workmanship. That Greek word is poema, we're his expression of creative beauty. To do good works that God has prepared in advance for us to do. So when you got saved, Greg, just using you as an example, you didn't have to find a cause. God gave you one. And if he's really the Lord of your life, what you'll do is you'll pursue that calling. Now you say, well, well, that's just for believers. No, people get saved. That's more important than any social justice emphasis that any church has. People need to get saved. And then when they get saved and God sends them out to do something, well, then God's accomplishing the work he wants when we are trying to emphasize social justice or any other emphasis apart from winning and making disciples, then we're on our own mission, our own agenda, and then we're at odds with God. Now, will God take care of social 
issues? Of course he will. Um, I've used our church in the past as an example, Greg. We have a free school. People that can't afford to go to school are getting a great education, a Christian education. And it's absolutely free. We've been doing it now 21 years. We have a free doctor's office, a family practice doctor's office. We've seen more than 35,000 patients in the eight years that it's been going. So people who need a doctor, who can't afford a doctor, no money's ever changed hands. We don't even take insurance. But people who can't go anywhere else can come here. Jesus said, the poor you will always have with you. We're able to share Jesus with people while we take care of their bodies physically. We have a house. Somebody donated a house to us, and now we've got a house for women who are are, are being abused or some who have been in trouble with the law, some who've had babies and, and, and they really don't know how to reconnect with their baby. So God does that, and all we have to do is say, okay, Jesus, what about me? What do you want us to do? And he's the one who will, in fact, then give us his mission for us. And Greg, that's the one that we ought to pursue. Thank you for tuning in. I appreciate it. You can hear the music. Um, Paula will be live in studio tomorrow with me on the date day edition of the program. You're listening to the word to stand up for life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio.